There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Jim. Great to be back after our most recent podcast with Professor Chris Gray. Just want to draw people's attention to that very special podcast that I put up earlier. It was a great conversation. For once, it was mostly somebody else other than myself and Jim talking. And it was great to hear a really deep domain expert, somebody that has read everything, including the legislation, including all the rules and regulations, treaties, discussion documents about treaties, Northern Ireland protocols. This guy has actually read it all, I suspect several times, has listened to all of the conversations and has unrivaled, unparalleled knowledge of the whole process. His perspective is fascinating. I learned a lot. I don't know about you, Jim, but I heard things that I had never heard before and I considered myself to be a Brexit geek. So I won't say any more about that other than to thoroughly recommend anybody interested in the current state of play on Brexit. Fully six and a half years after the referendum, when I suspect most of us hoped that we wouldn't be talking about it, I got an, an email today from Bloomberg, from their economics department, with the headline, Brexit is back. There are lots of articles, commentaries in that vein around at the moment. So I think Chris Gray's remarks, comments, analysis are very, very well timed. I have to say, I thought it was fascinating. Um, His insight is, as you say, absolutely remarkable. And uh, I would, as well as listen to this podcast, I would certainly recommend anybody who hasn't done to look at his blog. His ongoing commentary on Brexit is really good. And I think particularly for people who are interested in the minutiae of it, there's a lot of detail in there. So, yeah, hopefully, Chris, it will go down well for our listeners. But given how, I guess, preoccupied we are in this country with all things UK and Brexit, and particularly UK politics, um, I think people will find it a really interesting listen. It's very insightful. As I say, there's stuff in there that I didn't know. One interesting thing that has an Anglo-Irish dimension 
I promised I'd shut up about this podcast. I can't help myself. The Good Friday Agreement, we often hear people from the north of Ireland saying that all of this Brexit stuff has huge implications for the Good Friday Agreement, which in fairness it does in many different dimensions. But one thing that's often said that I hadn't realised was wrong was that the terms of the Good Friday Agreement legally require cross-community consent to anything that the UK does with its treaties with the European Union and how they affect Northern Ireland. And Chris said that that's just not true. The UK is free to negotiate whatever treaties it wants with the European Union independently of the Good Friday Agreement so that the really the DUP's insistence that they need to consent to anything that goes into these treaties is just legally incorrect. So it's an interesting interpretation. It's a legal one. And it was something that I hadn't heard before. So it's, it's always interesting to hear fresh stuff. So let's move on to today's agenda, Jim. And one of the things that I know both of us want to talk about is that we have fresh OECD economic forecasts for that club of economies, it's essentially the rich world's club of economies, Paris-based organization, their economic forecasts, so all of the usual caveats apply, but they are forecasts that are amongst the best in the game. And it's always the analysis and commentary around the forecasts that interests me more than the raw numbers themselves. I'm going to leave it to you to talk about what the OECD says about Ireland but I will focus on what it's going to say about the UK. But before we do that, I just want to mark a couple of anniversaries, actually. Today, or yesterday rather, was the ninth anniversary of what was called, came to be called the Maidan Revolution in Ukraine. All sorts of things were going on at the time. To cut a very long story short, I thought it was a heck of a day yesterday, that anniversary, where you could say that what subsequently happened during that revolution in Ukraine is that people died in the fight for membership of the European Union for Ukraine. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that. On that day, nine years later, Rishi Sunak proudly stood up, Prime Minister of the UK, and said that the UK would never, under any circumstances under his leadership, ever get closer to the European Union. I thought it was a disgraceful speech. It's all part of a piece, of course, of the Brexiteering absolute nonsense and I just want to record my disgust with what he said. I think that he's very weak, and that weakness is displayed continuously daily with these sorts of remarks. He's got a lot of previous with this kind of stuff. Enough on that. Uh, today is the anniversary of the assassination of John, Fitz, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, President Kennedy, a dark day in US and global history. I just wanted to mark it because I am old enough to actually remember the day, to remember the moment that it was first broadcast in the UK. I was a very small child watching television with my parents. I, I uh, was a lot smaller, Chris. Indeed, indeed. Well, you still are, Jim. <laughs> and, uh, the TV program that we were watching, I remember it actually, it was a, it was a program called Take Your Pick. It was a an early game show that was shown on, I think, ITV, one of two channels that we got on our black and white television back in the day. God, this is turning into an episode of Angela's Ashes, isn't it? So I remember it. And so we interrupt this program to bring you very sad news. President Kennedy has been assassinated. Uh, extraordinary. So I think the world lost a great leader. We haven't had too many of them since. I know, yeah. he had his, I know he had his flaws, and I know all of the subsequent biographies have been somewhat revisionist. But I wonder if, if we had leaders like that around today. I am actually, on balance, an admirer of Joe Biden. I admire Joe Biden much more than I admire Barack Obama, for example. 
I think the sainted Obama doesn't deserve his his incredible reputation that he's got. I think he did sweet F.A. during his time and indeed left the door open ajar for some of the antics of Putin. But that's by the by. I, I, I don't think that we have zero leadership in the world today. It's just that it's more noticeable by its absence by its yeah. presence and yeah, we need it, we need more kennedys i think yeah i, I agree with you I've, I've read a number of his biographies including the most recent one written there about three or four years ago and i become more fascinated by the guy um, and what i what i find really interesting about kennedy is and, and indeed his brother bobby kennedy they were talking about economic activity they were talking about gdp they were talking about quality of life well before you know it was a topic of discussion and um, I've I've read several studies of quality of life, including an edition that was a volume that was um, edited by President Sarkozy re- recently, and and he was quoting from both Kennedys in that about what they were saying about quality of life at the time, the ineptitude of GDP as a measure of anything. I just thought they were really farcing people. But I also remember as a kid, uh, well, obviously I was I was only a few months old when he was assassinated. But I remember um, hearing afterwards as a young kid that my parents spoke about traveling down to New Ross and Wexford to see John F. Kennedy. So um, he certainly was an iconic leader. Um, he was deeply flawed, as you say, in, in many respects. But he was a bloody good leader and he knew what leadership was all about. And I think he also and, and I guess we should yearn for these days of, you know, politics was so civilized in relative terms back then compared to the poison it is at the moment. And uh, we hope Trump is still driving that. So, yeah, it is it is starting to sound a bit nostalgic, all of this. Uh, but it is an anniversary, um, I think, worth matching or worth marking. Excuse me. Um, the OECD today, Chris, I- interesting. I-, I know one of the headlines out of it was that um, the UK is going to be the poorest performing G7 economy. Okay. Um, but the, the, the overall assessment of the global economy is global GDP growth is projected at 3.1% this year, which is roughly half what we saw in the post in the covid rebound year of 2021 slowing further to 2.2% in 2023 and then in 2024 they're talking about growth of 2.7%. So a pretty sober global assessment for the next 18 months or so. All of the factors that they lay out are I think all pretty obvious. It's rising interest rates, it's the persistence of inflation, it's the ongoing uncertainty around the Ukraine situation and so on. And of course, the other thing they say is that as they see it at the moment, all of the risks to this forecast would appear to be skewed to the downside rather than the upside, given the uncertainty that persists at the moment. But pretty stark stuff being said about the UK economy. Absolutely. As you say, the UK is the worst performer in the G7, but also the OECD, bar Russia. Russia is still, I think, in the OECD. And they certainly forecast if it's not actually a formal member, it's certainly part of their forecast uh, output. And the list of countries that they do produce forecasts for all have faster growth than the UK, apart from Russia, um, in 2023 and in 2024. Uh, Germany is the next worst because that is the most exposed to the energy shock because of its heavy manufacturing 
size, relative size of its economy. Um, but even that manages a wee bit more growth than does the UK, which is not a manufacturing powerhouse anymore. Uh, the UK's performance is is pathetic, actually. And one of the interesting things that emerges from reading the OECD analysis, from reading that stuff that I saw from Bloomberg Economics, is the extent to which there is a new or newish narrative coalescing, crystallizing, if you like, around what the economic problems are facing the UK. And it goes something like this, which is that it's not just about Brexit. It's got a lot to do with Brexit. But the UK has lots of deep structural problems to do with productivity growth, long-term economic growth, its lack of investment, real physical investment in the economy going back many, many years. It's got huge problems related to all of that, huge problems in inequality. It is now the most unequal society economy in Europe. It has US-style measured levels of inequality, uh, but still has the highest rates of taxation that they've seen in probably 70 years. So that it's in an extraordinary mess. And then you have overlaid these long-lasting, going back many years, problems You've overlaid Brexit on it, and that has just made it an awful lot worse. And that narrative is appearing all over the place now, which is really quite interesting in that there appears to be quite widespread agreement about there are all of these issues facing the UK, of which Brexit is but one, a very big one, but there's lots of other things going on as well. And all of these problems have solutions. Uh, They might be politically very difficult solutions. Economists might argue about which solution is the best one to adopt for each of these problems, uh, which ones should be tackled first. We can have all of those debates, but we're not. We're not having any of those debates because the ruling party, the Conservative Party in the UK, when you look at each of the different things that one might do to alleviate some of those problems, there is, for instance, a worker shortage. There is a shortage of skilled workers, shortage of unskilled and skilled workers, actually. They reckon... The Confederation of British Industry reckons there we're about a million workers short. I mean, so it's a very peculiar recession where the labour market is very, very tight, um, and yet uh, there is no growth. We are in recession. It's unusual in that regard, and that and the UK actually shares some aspects of that with, with other economies. One of the more disappointing aspects of that is that the obvious solution to that, in the short and the medium term, is to allow employers to recruit both skilled and unskilled workers from overseas. And both political parties, not just the Tories, have set their face against this. Keir Starmer has made a disgraceful speech, in my view, uh, today, I think, saying that British employers must wean themselves off overseas labour. It's just stupid. It's ridiculous. I mean, if he wants to say that British firms should be training more workers, should be spending more money on education and training, should raise their game in order to get productivity up, we can all applaud that. But his anti-immigration stance is pure populist nonsense, and he's allowing himself to be dragged around by the nose by the right wing of the Conservative Party in not dissimilar ways to the way Rishi Sunak has been doing. So I have criticisms for both sides of the political divide in the UK. The other kind of solutions to the UK's economic problems, the list is a long one. One of my favourites is just allowing people, companies, business, institutions to build things, build houses, build factories, build offices, build wind farms, build solar farms. We can't do it because the planning process prevents it from happening. That's not unlike some other countries, including Ireland, um, has similar sorts of problems. So it's not exclusive to the UK. 
But the list of the UK's problems is probably the longest. And all of these problems are the most deep seated. And each one of the solutions that you look at, I just mentioned two there, there are plenty of others. There is what I call a blocking coalition, particularly within the Conservative Party. And the main blocking coalition is actually old people. Because the old people who typically, but not exclusively, vote for the Conservatives are the ones that don't like building new things. They don't like solar farms near them. They don't like wind farms near them. They don't like the kind of reforms that are needed to get the UK economy going again. They don't like change. And the kind of changes we need are the ones that will actually pick their pockets financially and deserve and disturb their comfortable lifestyle. I'm one of those people, of course. And I know that what I'm advocating means that I would end up paying more taxes, have more things built around me and have my lifestyle changed. And of course, I don't like that. But there are enough of me to uh, amount to what could well be a blocking coalition for the for the next general election. If it happened today, it wouldn't. But, you know, there's about 30, 35 percent of the people in that cohort that are spread demographically nice and beautifully around the constituencies of the UK that could well see a surprise, not the Labour landslide that is currently being forecast. People who are young and want all of this change, need all of this change, rightly demand all of this change, tend to live in cities and are concentrated, and a lot of their votes are wasted. They're not spread out evenly throughout the country in the way that this older blocking generation is. So I think we've got a demographic intergenerational conflict going on here in the UK that's going to get very nasty in the years ahead. Because the conclusion I draw from the OECD's analysis, my own analysis, and looking at what everything everybody else is saying, this, this coalescing, crystallizing economic narrative for what is wrong with the UK is that nothing's going to change. And that nothing is going to change thing leaves me feeling very depressed. Um, but I do think that given that it is such a bad situation, it can't be static. It has to be dynamic. And some of the consequences of this bad situation are very unpredictable socially and politically as well as economically. So I'm feeling quite gloomy about the prospects for the UK today, Jim. But that's the UK. Its forecasts from the OECD are awful. The UK government gets in, comes in for a lot of stick for its energy price supports comes in for a lot of stick for a lot of its policies, um, not least the Brexit one. There are coded uh, warnings that Brexit has compounded the long-term problems of the UK economy, um, that narrative again. So I, I really should stop going on about the UK now because um, I think people are, are probably going to go down the pub and say, let's stop listening to all this doom and gloom. Tell me something bright and optimistic about Ireland and what the OECD is saying about that, Jim. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Yeah, before I do that, Chris, um, I was taken aback there when you said that today you're feeling a bit downbeat about the UK 
uh, what makes today different than any other day. Thank you for um, that, Chief. Your, your, your narrative for some time has been, um, I think, justifiably very negative in fairness. And um, I think as un- events unfold in the UK, um, the truth of what you're saying becomes more and more obvious. And I, I totally share your views on the couple of speeches we've seen from Rishi Shunak in recent days. Um, you know, it's more of the same. Nothing is going to change. Listening to Chris Gray yesterday, you just wouldn't be terribly confident that under a Labour government, much will change either. The, 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 U, the UK political system is in a deep malaise. Um, I was speaking this morning at a business event in Carlo. I was presenting the global economic backdrop. Basically, I was asked to talk about the environment for Irish business in 2023, particularly SMEs, that is small businesses employing more than two, less than 250 people, of which over 99% of businesses in Ireland are in that category. And I was presenting a pretty downbeat assessment of the global economic outlook, the risks. Um, we, we know the story. The, the OECD has summed it up very well again today. Um, and then I went on to talk about Ireland and um, I, I produce a pretty balanced outlook for Ireland in the sense that, there's, as we've discussed in this podcast, there's a lot of positive stuff still happening, a lot of positive momentum, uh, but there are obvious risks. And uh, the OECD analysis of Ireland today sort of backs that up very well, I think. Um, it is forecasting GDP growth next year of 3.8% and 3.3% in 2024, and that's down from a phenomenal 10.1% this year. And okay, before people start jumping up and down and saying that GDP in an Irish context is not a good measure of anything, uh, that is correct. Uh, But unfortunately, the OECD doesn't um, buy into the concept of GNI star. That's purely a domestic construct. So GDP is what the OECD is forecasting, and it is forecasting a significant slowdown in growth next year and the year after. Do they not forecast modified domestic demand as well? Um, no. I think they do. Um, forgive me for cutting Chris, across Chris, be- I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. It is, is not included in the main forecast. It is included in the memorandum items. It's the notes at the end. And that's okay. a big slowdown, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is a significant. Well, yeah. I mean, GDP growth next year of 3.8% and modified domestic demand growth of 0.9%. So that's pretty much modified domestic demand, virtually flatlining. And then for next year, as I said, GDP growth of 3.3%, modified domestic demand growth of 3.1%. For 2024. In 2024. So a reasonable recovery. I apologize for that. GNI, GNI star is what they don't forecast, okay? The, the, these um, numbers are all hot off the presses. So they're all we're, hot off the press, and I'm, I'm just, I've just downloaded them, and I'm looking at them. There's a, there's a few other interesting aspects. Harmonised consumer price inflation, um, that's the EU average, or the EU measure at least, excuse me. I'm getting very tongue-tied today, Chris. Um, 8.4% average predicted this year, 7.2% next year and 2.9% in 2024. So a significant moderation in um, consumer price inflation is projected. And that is totally consistent with what the OECD is forecasting for global inflation. Six point, well, at least OECD inflation, 6.3% this year, four and a quarter next year, and two and a half in 2024. And the rationale 
for that deceleration inflation is tighter monetary policy takes effect. In other words, economic growth slows, domestic demand pressures wane and transport costs and delivery times normalize. And it then points out that the pace of decline will vary across different countries. But 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 anyway, that's the inflation forecast for Ireland and for the OECD. The other piece I find interesting, um, and I worry, sorry, I worry about that inflation forecast in that it seems too perfect. And, and if you look at all of the numbers for all of the economies around the OECD forecast, um, there's all these beautiful graphs that are just yeah, coming down um, going pretty down. much from now. And mm. yeah, fingers crossed, let's hope that they're right. But um, we've all, all of us, have got inflation so badly wrong over the last couple of years. I don't think um, us or indeed the OECD themselves would hold these forecasts. Because yeah. in the narrative, because it's always in the narrative that this stuff is, is most interesting as much as the raw numbers, it's quite clear that they're worried. In, and I, I noticed this, they said this about Ireland, for example, but also many other countries, that inflation is becoming embedded, is becoming more broadly based than they yeah. had wanted that they, and indeed that they had forecast. So if that process were to continue, this these big falls in inflation around the world uh, are not going to come to pass. Obviously, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. There's a lot of conditional assumptions in that to do particularly with energy prices, but also, of course, the behavior of the labor market. But the, the unemployment everywhere, even in Ireland, is forecast to go up, I think. Certainly. Yeah, but it's, it's, I was just going to say that, Chris. It's it's interesting um, that the rate in Ireland at the moment in October was 4.4%. Um, the average for this year is forecast at 4.7, 5.3 next year and 5.1 the following year. So given the extent of the global headwinds, given the extent of the global risks, the slowdown in economic activity, etc., that sort of increase in the Irish lab, in Irish unemployment is pretty modest. And um, it's, it's a point you were making a few minutes ago about... Uh, the shortage of labour in the UK, despite the fact the economy is slowing down. And I, when I was on my feet this morning, I was talking about one of the challenges for businesses next year. OK, I outlined that very um, risky and negative global economic backdrop, rising interest rates impacting domestically and so on. And then I went on to say that I believe that one of the big problems next year for business once again will be the recruitment and retention of workers. So it is quite amazing that labour markets are proving so resilient and are expected to behave so resiliently over the next couple of years, despite the um, significant slowdown in economic activity. What, what's happening? I think in part it's a mystery. Lots of economists are looking at this. There's lots of suspects and the list of suspects is a, is a long one. It's the familiar suspects. People like me have left the workforce, older people, um, much sooner than we would normally have done. A lot of people in the UK went home because they, they weren't from the UK, they were from the EU, and they've been made to feel, um, in certain circumstances, in a lot of circumstances, very unwelcome, and they haven't come back. Obviously, that hasn't happened in Ireland. Uh, you've got similar worker shortages in the United States. I was there recently. There's help-wanted signs everywhere in the United States, despite an undoubted economic slowdown, not yet recession, in the US. It's In part, it's a mystery, Jim, and uh, we are still trying to puzzle it out. I'm sorry, I haven't got anything more for you other than that. This morning, um, after I finished, I was followed by another speaker who basically said that um, is a time that everybody went to the bar, um, obviously found what I was saying um, unpalatable and pretty negative. But I, 
I certainly didn't feel that. I felt particularly in relation to the Irish coverage, it's very balanced and there's a lot of positive stuff, as we've discussed um, on this podcast a few times recently. Um, but it, it, it sort of got me thinking. I remember in 2007, 2008, in the run up to the great financial uh, crisis and the crash here in the Irish economy, I remember standing up at so many uh, conferences so on and the person organizing it say to you, uh, you'll be upbeat, you lift him a bit today, will you? You know, make, help him leave the room in an optimistic mood. And um, then a couple of years later, of course, um, they were ridiculing me for getting so wrong. And um, so I, I was thinking about that today, that there is no way I will ever again stand up and tell a story I don't believe fully. Okay. Um, well, and that's the other thing about our beliefs is that one of the things that we always try to explain on this podcast is that we never hold these beliefs with 100% table thumping certainty. They're caveated, they're conditional, and we know that they're actually likely to be wrong. Uh, at different times, we may, may hold different levels of conviction, but I've never made an economic forecast with which I have been, you know, 90% certain, let alone 100. And getting over these subtleties and these nuances can be quite difficult, particularly for an audience. And different audiences have different demands. But generally speaking, audience want to hear upbeat rather than downbeat messages. That's the human thing. It's very natural. It's very understandable. So the, the, these judging how to make these presentations in a realistic, honest framework with all of the subtleties and the nuances around it is a, is a very tricky balancing act. You can sometimes leave people with completely the wrong impression that you're a complete pessimist or a complete optimist. We're never either. But depending on the day that's in it, and often it can be a vibe, it can be your body language as much as what you say, it can be the mood that the audience happens to be in from the speaker that they've just heard. There can be so many different things going on, and it's, it's a very tricky thing, public speaking, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I was often accused back in the day of wearing the green jersey and so on. Um, I remember being at a funeral in rural Limerick in about 2007, um, I think it was. And at that stage, you know, the economy was still going OK. And um, a woman came up to me and said, Mr. Doom and Gloom. There you go. You know, she, she had interpreted everything I'd said over the previous three years been incredibly negative. So it's 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 very hard to get the message right. I mean, my my answer this morning was that um, that the word therapist didn't appear on my CV and that if they if they wanted a therapist, they should go to a therapist, not listening to somebody like me. I mean, I, I think it is just so important as economists that we present as realistic and as honest a picture as possible about the economic environment in which businesses will be operating in 2023. And at the end of the day, it was a business audience today. Um, I was trying to identify all of the risks they the business environment is facing into in 2023. And of course, there are some opportunities, uh, but I think it's more important to be prepared to deal with the risks than to exploit the opportunities at a time for uncertainty like this. For those um, people who are listening that might be considering employing either Jim or myself or both of us as a speaker at an event or doing some consultancy work for you, because we, we do all sorts of different things like that, this is what you'll get if you do employ us in any in any capacity. <laughs> Hell uh, morning. And unfortunately, what we often find, and you and I have found this when we've been employed in the past, Jim, is that we've given people what they didn't want. And that is always, a commercially at least, a difficulty. We were employed with a subtext, with um, a hidden agenda. 
and whatever it might be uh, this you won't get that unless it accords with our beliefs and um sometimes people want to be told what's going to happen next year and can't understand it why we say well we don't know what's going to happen next year this is what we think might happen on the basis of gas prices doing that interest rates doing this exchange rates doing the other but it's all very uncertain these are our best guesses these are the IMF's best guesses the OECD's best guesses that's all they are. But let's have a look at the narrative, the thing that I always like to go on around, which is, I think, more informative than the raw numbers. But some people just don't want that. And that, that's the business risk that we face. Tell me, Chris, did you enjoy Wales and the United States? I did. I didn't actually see the Argentina-Saudi Arabia game, but I loved the sound of, of that result. But I, that, while we're on this, Jim, I have a, a moral dilemma question for you. Okay. Everybody, all the flabby liberals of this world, I suspect. Are you a flabby liberal, Jim? Uh, no, whatever, but whatever flabby, I'm certainly not a liberal. Okay. Well, sorry, sorry. I am a liberal in the sense that I am open to all sorts of ideas. Uh, so everybody, am, I, flabby, I liberal, am, flabby liberals and the left and the right are jumping up and down and saying, oh, 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 Qatar should never have been given the World Cup. Would you agree with that? That's not not the percent, not necessarily the sentiment, but the fact that load just about everybody from every part of the political spectrum is saying Qatar shouldn't have been given the World Cup. You yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't believe it should. And actually, for two, two reasons: one was the circumstances in which it was granted, and the alleged bribery involved. And I think it's been more proven than allegedly alleged at this point. And secondly, and um, disrupting the whole soccer season in Europe to hold. Okay. Do you the think, Cup therefore, that we should buy stronger. their gas? Pardon? Do you think we should buy their gas? Um, well, I'd prefer not to, in a sense that I, I, I really do think that we need to reduce our reliance on imported energy. And we need to develop the alternative energy agenda as quickly as possible. And I think the events in Ukraine um, have certainly highlighted that to me in the last eight or nine months. And, do you um, not think it's flabby thinking to jump up and down to say, don't hold the World Cup there, but we will buy as much gas as you can possibly supply us? It, it is mean, totally. And these it kinds is, of uh, yeah. contradictions, ethical dilemmas, moral contradictions are all over the place. And one of the things that I think that uh, I would draw people's attention to, draw your attention to, not least, there's a wonderful article in today's Financial Times on this very issue, written by an absolutely fabulous columnist called Janen Ganesh in which he yep. talks about all sorts of things that have been happening to flabby Western opinions since since 9-11, actually. And he does it in a beautifully written way. I'm so envious of his writing style, but uh, that's my column recommendation for the day. Jim, we're starting to get to our time yep. limit. I've said all that I need to say today. I don't know about you. Yeah, I'd just like to say one thing, Chris. Um, I would like to wish all of our listeners in the United States a happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. And... And particularly um, my brother Robert and um, a lady I know out there in California called Kathy Webb. Happy Thanksgiving Thanksgiving. to listeners and indeed to all of our quite a lot of listeners in the United States these days. It's really quite nice to, to see our numbers. So thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Cheers, Jim. Cheers, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. 
you can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.